0: I was pleased to see you smile at the top of our show, because once the game starts, you have a game face. You don't smile much out there. I don't think you have to do things for money anymore.
1: Correct. What's up, Laker fans? Welcome to the Laker Film Room Podcast, brought to you by the Blue Wire Podcast Network. I'm Pete, joined by Darius and Mike. And wow, what a 24 hours in Lakerland. land. Um, of course, this is the season that, you know, perhaps the biggest... And best win of the year is followed by an entire day of talk about Frank Vogel's job status. Probably the best highlight individual moment of the year was Austin Reeves hitting at three in Dallas, which may or may not have also been a super spreader event. It's one of them years, man. What we're going to try to do in, in this episode is we're not here to talk about like, should they keep Frank? Should they not keep Frank or anything like that? That's not our place, especially in Mike and I's position. But the point of this episode is just to give all of our thoughts on Vogel, what how Vogel's coached and Vogel's circumstances, just to look at this season through the lens of Frank Vogel to provide, I think, more information on why we are here and what kind of the broader landscape is so everybody else can make up their minds. So in that vein, Darius, when you look at Frank Vogel's season and and all that it entails and all of the external factors, all of his decisions, things like that. Where do you kind of start in terms of the contextualization of his season? I mean, I start with the fact that he's been dealt a rough hand, in my opinion.
2: I think we'll get into how you manage a rough hand, right? I'm not really a card player or anything like that, but if you start with some rough cards Basically, there is still a way to navigate that in order to get an outcome that that you want. Um, But I think that the idea of what this season was supposed to be from the outset was pretty dependent on maybe a handful of players, basically. Like, I think that those guys were the sort of foundation of the idea of what this season was supposed to be. And I think that that was obviously the three stars. And then I think that that was then dependent on what your forward situation looked like and what your wing situation looked like. And I think having the specific injuries that the Lakers had even before the season got started at all, like in the preseason, essentially, really put the team and Vogel in a situation where he had, I think, fewer choices to go with. And then the choices that he did go with, I think, weren't always correct. Although I understood them based off of who Frank Vogel is as a coach. And so for me, I'm looking at it through the lens of what are your instincts as a coach and what is available to you. I think Vogel would have been more willing to coach outside or near the edges of his comfort zone if the entire team or close to the entire team had have been healthy when the season started. Because that was not the case, I think Vogel coached from a position of this is what I know or this is what or these are some of my more core beliefs as a coach and I think that that Set the Lakers down a path of I don't know if this is going to work, basically, but it was tough. I don't know, man. I like I look back to the start of the season and having THT and Ariza and none all out at the same time. And then it's like, well, who are your wings? And then all the other guards that were out I just felt like, man, Monk started the season hurt. Ellington started the season hurt, if I recall correctly. And so your almost your entire perimeter rotation was wiped out. And I just think it got the Lakers down a wrong path, basically. And how much of that is Vogel's fault? Like, I think he contributed some to it. I also don't know how you compensate for having that many perimeter players out. So I think that's a good place to start. I think that that idea of being dealt a rough hand is a real thing. And it sort of got the ball rolling in a direction where a real course correction was going to be needed eventually. And I think we could debate on whether or not he got to that
3: quickly enough. So I, for me, it's uh, it's unfortunate that the conversation today and whether that's internally externally whatever on this podcast is back to the coaching staff uh, as opposed to all of the stuff that that just the basketball that the Lakers played which was pretty good against Utah after being pretty bad against Denver and they're about to play Indiana tonight before going on this long trip like they got plenty to worry about there
1: yeah of, of all the times for this to come out right yeah and so and that's that's again with it we
3: can we all have our different lenses of, of dissecting stuff like this. The, the stat that I use to start the Utah game, I don't remember at this point exactly what it was, but it was, so the Lakers have missed 141 games due to injury or illness, uh, not counting COVID. And I think the COVID absences is something like 38. So, you know, do the math and you're getting close to 200 um, total missed games per player. And the Lakers have played, uh, what do they played? 40? 40, 44 four games? games, Mike. Yeah. 44 games. So do so them out games. there, right? And it's like four games. or That's like four players per game or something like that out of the rotation. And it's the LeBron and AD aspect of it. And that, to me, if you – they were discussing this a little bit on um, on like an inside the NBA the other day. But when, when I just look at a, a – generally look at a season and if you give me what the roster is and you show me which players played and which didn't, um, I could probably tell you what the record is regardless of the coach. Then the coach can come in and I think push a team over the top and, and really like be somebody that's a, a great through line that can install a defense at the beginning of the year. And install a certain type of motivation. And I think that Vogel uh, over these last three years, I'm not just going to judge like these last couple of months um, has really done a, a good job uh, in, in a lot of ways. And so like, I, I'm pulling back big picture, Pete, I'm sure you're going to come, or you can go back a short picture, but that whole conversation, to me, I'm tired of it. Uh, and and that's not to say I'm going to turn off the podcast now. Um, <laughs> this side of it, but I just don't like what else what else do we want to uh, go over on this front like that that uh, this that's renewed? So I'm. this is where I'm curious and I want to kind of sit back and listen.
1: Well, I think that to do that, we actually have to zoom out even a little bit more, not just to this season, uh, but even prior to Frank Vogel getting here, because I think that the desired roster construction is really important and uh, an influential factor in how we are where we are, especially with respect to Frank Vogel. So when we signed LeBron, our initial intent – and mind you, all of this is coming from the perspective of someone who's followed and covered the team very closely. It's, it doesn't reflect anyone else's views. This is just my view of like if I were a detective and trying to be like, what happened here? This is this is my perspective of that. When we signed LeBron, we also tried to sign Paul George. At least that's how I recall things. He chose to stay in Oklahoma City before getting getting traded the following year to the Clippers. The next year, we tried to sign, we actually traded for Anthony Davis and we tried to sign Kawhi Leonard. We did not sign Kawhi Leonard. In both the season where we didn't sign Paul George and we didn't sign Kawhi Leonard, there was a backup plan, right? And I think that the idea of Plan B and Plan C is going to be is going to be specific to. Uh, sorry, that, that got me to crack it up. Uh, <laughs> uh, I think the the whole idea of Plan B and Plan C is going to be something that applies to Frank Vogel a little bit down the line of this conversation. So keep that in the back of the mind. The idea of how you approach plan B, plan C, plan D is important. So anyway, our plan B when we try to sign Paul George is Rondo, Lance Stevenson, JaVale McGee, Michael Beasley. Am I forgetting anybody core in in that little uh, period of time, right? We're kind of like punting like, oh, we didn't sign that second Max guy that we wanted, but we want to punt the cap space down, try to do it again next year. And so that's what they did, but the types of players that they sign are shot creators. And on the present on that team, you have also Lonzo Ball and Brandon Ingram who can handle the ball quite a bit themselves. So in aggregate, you've built a team conceptually that has a lot of playmaking around LeBron. Then in the championship season and that off-season, that's the Kawhi off-season. Well, who do we go to that off season as our plan B? We don't get Kawhi. What do we do next? It's all defensive players. Our big money signing is Danny Green. We re-sign Alex Caruso and kind of promote him to a bigger role that he'd already been growing into. We re-up KCP, right? And so it's this D and three concept, right? And that's the formula, Mike, that won us a title, and that's a, one that I know you're an, you're an advocate for. Yes, I like that one. You like that one? Okay, cool. I don't want to I don't want to misquote you. So that's that's the build nope, you that got wins. It. That wins us a title. But here's the important part within the argument that I'm making. That wasn't what we were going for in the first place. That was our plan B. If we had our druthers, it would have been a three star build. And what I'm arguing is that I think that both, I think that putting playmaking around LeBron was deemed Essential at some point. I think that it was part of the build. Like when we first got here and Magic was running things, that was the idea of the team, right? Is to put playmaking around LeBron in terms of how we're going to go about trying to win. That's the approach. It's a similar season in that we, so we're like 20 and 14 on Christmas Day. We start to, we're really starting to play better, but we get hit by a LeBron injury. And then it's just a mess of a season, right? We got the trade deadline, there was a bunch of drama there. The next season, things go pretty swimmingly in terms of injuries, right? The championship season, we had a good deal of continuity. Now, I think there was more roster turnover than we remember with guys like Quinn Cook and Troy Daniels and Jared Dudley either not being on the team or not being in the rotation anymore. But the point being is I think that the idea that surrounding LeBron James with playmaking is something that is important to somebody very important or a couple of people very important within the decision-making tree of how are we going to go about doing this? And that if the plan was to do that, when we signed him in 2018, it's probably really the plan to do that in 2022. Because the whole point is from LeBron's perspective, how long can I be the guy that creates shots for everybody? Like if we're going to get an open shot, it's going to be because i or anthony davis but from the perimeter anthony, ad can't help a ton from the perimeter i'm the only guy that could really get us good shots and if i'm not doing that from the perimeter then we just don't score so i have to do that all the time so i actually understand that perspective but then that sets you off into a course remember they said that we have to have we have to acquire a playmaker this summer so then what playmaker do we acquire let's take a quick break and we come back we'll continue So when you prioritize playmaking over the course of this past summer, that sets you down a certain course, especially considering you don't just get to pick Darius out of any playmaker that you want. Like, oh, we want to transition LeBron to not have to do this as much and give it to a point guard. Let's have our pick of anyone in the NBA that would be ideal for that. You don't really get that choice. And there's a whole spectrum of players that, hey, maybe this guy's a backup point guard that's pretty good, but he's not the guy that's going to take all of that weight off of LeBron James's shoulders. And so that leads us to Russell Westbrook. If you look at the playmakers available this offseason, there wasn't much in terms of high usage guys. We can't really talk about players on other teams, but the Westbrook trade in particular sets us on that course of, okay, now we've got, we have to put certain things around this trio. We have to put shooting. The question though becomes, what is the second attribute that you have to put next to that. There are plenty of three and D guys, but they can't handle the ball that much. So we turned the dial so far from a bunch of guards and wings who can't really handle the ball to all of them being able to do it on some level or another, that that removed a lot of the three and D guys, right? It's a lot of three and ball handling type of guys. So what does Frank Vogel do with that? How can you play with this particular roster? So I've been rambling, and, but setting up context that I think is important, Darius. I'd love to hear your thoughts and kind of where I've gone with that so far, because I I, I have more places I want to go. No, so
2: all of that's fine. It's obviously the direction that the team is going. And I think that you're the point about chasing a third star earlier and that not working out, especially in the summer that they traded for Anthony Davis, which ended up leading to a championship team. This is where it's instructive, though, to think about also like what the team actually did last season. In the aftermath of the bubble Mm -hmm. and. The decision making coming out of that season, I think, is especially interesting. Because the team actually had players. They had signed Dennis Schroeder and they had signed Montrezl Harrell. More sort of offensively skewed players. And Dennis was actually a two-way player. And I thought that he played well. He wasn't my cup of tea. And I was fine to have him go somewhere else during the offseason. There are certain qualities I want in a point guard. And Dennis didn't have as many of them as I would have liked. So I was happy to see him go. The calculus, though, in basically saying, well, no, what we really need is someone much better the Dennis Schroeder is like same
1: type of guy, but just
2: yeah. That's the core part of the decision making and and the valuation that I think got trickier and really set the team down the path in which they were trying to go. The swapping out of ballast sort of salary slot players, mid-level, who make in between the mid-level exception, like the nine, ten million dollar range and the $15 million range, like the players who fit into that category are all gone now, and they were systematically swapped out over the course of two offseasons, right? Like Danny Green was one of those guys. He got turned into Dennis Schroeder, who was also one of those guys. The Lakers were able to finally use their full mid-level exception because they were operating as an over-the-cap team, and they used that on Montrez Harrell. So Montrez Harrell was another one of those guys. They signed Kyle Kuzma to an extension that kicked in this season. And he became one of those guys. And KCP was one of those guys. And so that's four guys who are in that range. And now all of them are gone. And then rather than bring back Alex Caruso, who could also be one of those guys who he can handle the ball, he can defend. He's a D in three guy. He shot 50% from three for the first like two months of the season before he fell off a little bit. And they prioritized Halen Horton Tucker over Alex Caruso, right, who is another one of those ball handler types. And so some of the choices, we can look at the Russell Westbrook decision. And I think that that did propel the team down a certain direction. But I think the THT Alex Caruso decision, using that as a pivot point to say we have to choose Mm -hmm. rather than why not both, like the meme of – the little girl cycle. Like, why not both, right? Why not both? Because both of those guys, in theory, help you. And one yeah. of them is this version of the team in which you're sort of laying out from a contextual standpoint, the direction that the team is going. And one of them is sort of an old guard sort of vision of like the championship version of the team that Frank Vogel probably, hey, I probably would have liked to have had. Yeah, this like, guy. at least
1: let's have a version of that, even if, if that's not the whole team anymore, that like we still want a version of that. And so, Mike, I don't want to like punt to you right this second so that you
2: could like wax poetically about Alex Caruso. And I also don't want to turn this into a referendum on like what the front office did six months ago versus what they're doing now. But I do think that all of this does tie back in together to the job that Frank Vogel was presented with. Because at this point, yeah, that's what, what I'm Vogel yeah. has is if because that because if you actually do bring back Caruso, you probably do give him a, a certain sort of foundational player archetype that he, that he would appreciate for the style that is still going to work for this team within the vision of that more playmaking, more ball handling.
3: My my little relitigation, I guess, to 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 go after those, and then I'm sure Pete will transition us into the current combo. Is they won the title? It made a lot of sense the way they played. Like that team, that team was great, Uh, even though there were some question marks because people liked the Clippers um, in in the regular season. People liked the Bucks, right? But eventually, like that team was awesome. They won 17 straight Western Conference road games. Uh, This was before the bubble, and then they got to the bubble and. Then the transition to last year's team, I think if you had taken out the fact that the season was on top of itself, the Lakers could have won the title again, very easily. Uh, I think they probably had the best team Uh, and Milwaukee certainly was, was right there. And that would have been a bloodbath, but you know, had that team stayed healthy, they had, they had what it took, uh, I thought. And so then now we get to the transition of this year and it's sort of the different roster and the different attempt and like... It does to me come back to LeBron and playmaking and either putting whether you put playmakers around him, whether you put three and D guys or some combination of both. And I just can never get past when you actually have to win the game. I want the ball in LeBron's hands. And so I don't want another playmaker that doesn't have other skills uh, to complement that that that's not a massive priority for me. I get having somebody, whether it was Schroeder the year before, or somebody that can take some of the playmaking duties, for, to get through a regular season, and whatever that combination is, whether it's a guy like AD or THT or shooter, just somebody that can make have the ball and do some stuff. But and this is the whole trick with LeBron and where he's at in his stage of his career, because like he he still plays like LeBron James. And therefore, I still want to prioritize. Like, I think that it's to get back to the three and D versus the playmaking. We've had that conversation a lot of times. I think we all know where I stand on it at this point. But I I don't want to ignore, you know, what like what LeBron wants there is more important than what I see. When I'm watching him play, because I think that in LeBron's, in LeBron's own mind, the last thing I'm going to try to do is psychoanalyze LeBron, but hey, like, I don't, this is really hard to have to make all the plays, but then you get on the court, you get on the court and you watch it. And that's still what ends up happening because he's still close enough to approximation of LeBron. And, and I, I just, what you have to take off the rest of the roster to get to that, I think has been, is, is tricky. Mike,
2: just to jump in there, you see it still at the end of games, he's still controlling possessions, even with Russell Westbrook in the game. And it's a tricky balance, I think, for LeBron, because, and again, I don't want to psychoanalyze him either, but he's still LeBron James. He looks in the mirror, I bet. And he's just like, well, I'm still that dude. Would it be helpful if like I had somebody who was sort of at or near my level who could control possessions? Sure. But at the end of the game, no player trusts themselves more than
1: themselves. But the point is that like and again, this is me advocating a point that I I think this is the argument, right? Is that that's fine. Controlling the last five minutes of a close game. We definitely don't want Russell Westbrook doing that for reasons that don't have anything to do with LeBron, right? He's not really a guy that breaks down a set defense where everybody's locked in. His skill set is in different places in terms sure. of being uh, a half court player. So even like even if LeBron wasn't in the picture, it would still be something like, you know, we, if we're relying on Russ to be a primary creator, that wouldn't be a good good idea. But I think the point is somebody that can carry so much of the load for the other 43 minutes of the game and LeBron is still that dude, but I think that the. Th- part about LeBron is that I don't think that we appreciate the degree to which he is a shapeshifter. He is dominating this season, but it's not entirely in the same way. He can always go back to access that ball handler type of guy, but he's post-sealing. He's rim running. We we get so many buckets where LeBron just runs down the middle of the court, court like he's AD, does one of those wonderful post-seals that he's probably the best in the game at, and he's putting a body on somebody. And you can't – but you can't – do that, he doesn't score that type of basket where he just sealed a guy right underneath the hoop and lays it right in, unless other players on the floor can handle the ball. Now, there is a very valid argument to be made that that Mike, I think, made to a certain degree that Like what you have to give up to acquire that degree of ball handling on the defensive end is is so severe that like you've just created a bigger problem elsewhere rather than resolving the problem that you were trying to resolve. Let's take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to continue this and then try to bring it back to Frank Vogel at the end of this. So, the thing that I wanted to jump in about earlier was to the point about ball handling. Kendrick Nunn applies to this argument as well, of like, he's another guy that, and I think that that is really central to the concept of the team that we're going to have ball handlers at every single position, and that that's really difficult to defend. I think from a basketball theory, basketball dork type of standpoint, and somebody who's run practices and loves a good sideline fast break and all of the X's and O's components of transition, like having ball handlers at every single position is, and somebody who can break somebody down in an isolation space is really exciting. It's one of those things, one of the thoughts that I had this past offseason was like, this team is really cool from a basketball theory standpoint. I just wish it wasn't my team that was experimenting with this, but that's where we are. And I I think that we turned the needle too far in terms of ball handling. So if the MLE signing, and maybe we're having a different conversation if Kendrick Nunn plays in a single game, right? We got to put that in the context here too, Mike, but that had we just had like – this is part of my argument about Stanley Johnson is that like we just need a forward who plays hard who's kind of that size. We're just – there's such a hole that having like, yeah he's fine, goes takes us from like a 1 out of 10 at that particular thing to a 4 out of 10. And that's really significant in an NBA that is so targeted in exploiting matchups, right? So any, anyhow, please, I, I'd love – that's my – I'm not arguing that this was the correct way to go, but what I'm arguing is that going in this direction facilitates a series of decisions after that that are very much on Frank Vogel's plate. Sure. I think that that gets us back to the point where he was dealt a rough hand. But that's the thing. It's it's rough in some respects. I guess my point is this. Why are we such a bad offense? Or why have we been such a bad offense all year? We should at least be good there in terms of the hand that's dealt him, right? Sure. I don't know. So it's 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 a it's something that in some aspects he was dealt a rough hand. In some aspects he was given more assets than he's ever had. I'd love your thoughts on it, Mike.
3: Well, the so the offense. This this is what the the immediate answer to all of the questions this year is injuries. That's the first answer. And if you're so, if you're having Westbrook has had to be your secondary guy, whether it was to AD when LeBron missed twelve games early, or now it's to LeBron with AD missing this game. And there's a there's a way to play that. And teams are going to going to pack in the paint and try to take that away. And and then like the positions that you have failing around that are mostly vet men guys, because, as you mentioned, none is also out. TSG not coming off the bench. They had a really nice stretch when Malik Monk um, came into the starting lineup, like when the, spa- the floor was spaced, when LeBron was really scoring. And then the defense slipped dramatically. So I think now they've been trying to turn the screws certainly in that Utah game back to all right just really getting this team to compete on the defensive side of the floor and the offense seems to to slip some with that but I know you want to get more into the way like the I shouldn't say I know you want to get back into um maybe answer your own question I guess is a, is a better way to to phrase that
1: with respect to why is why so, has the yeah. offense been bad yeah so Let's talk about that idea of plan B, plan C, plan D. Mike, you and I were sitting. Less than 10 feet away from Frank Vogel before the Boston Celtics game where we played them at home, beat them. It was a wonderful game. Josh Williams got a great, uh, picture of me. One of my favorite pictures. It's like from behind and it's the scoreboard of the Lakers being up 20 on the Celtics, like from the court view, which is about where I was, was sitting. Just really a, a wonderful night that I, I, uh, am looking. Once they come back from the Grammy trip, I'll be going back to games. I can't wait to get back there. But before that game, I, there was a really, uh, Telling press co- press conference pregame, and those don't get televised normally. You'll see the beat reporters and, and Mike tweeting about it. Right uh, today, it's at five forty-five. It's usually an hour and forty-five minutes before tip-off.
3: We'll always we'll put the first three or four minutes of it usually up in the pregame show. But yeah, like like right. a, an hour before the game. But the whole thing isn't up.
1: Right, it's not something that you can just tune into unless in, unless you have access. And so he Frank Vogel explicitly said, you know, the plan going into this season was to start AD at the five. And have Trevor Reese start in that third front court position with the idea that the size of a third wing is what allows you to maintain much of the integrity of playing big. Like, I, I know in Frank Vogel's Heart of Hearts, every time that we're playing super small and we're just getting our butts kicked right at the front of the rim, it just goes against so much of what he believes in basketball-wise that I can only imagine how tough it's been for him to navigate this based on his, his proclivities as, as a coach. But he said explicitly going into this year, we wanted to start AD at the five. We wanted to start Trevor next to LeBron so that we still have some size, but we can maintain the space. Like we know we need offensive spacing. And that's something that Vogel has said on, on several occasions. The question becomes when all of those injuries that you talked about, D, when those strike, what is your plan B? Trevor Reese is not available. Now what? Oh, Talon Horton Tucker, who you've now projected as kind of this three, who has a 7-1 wingspan and can win some physical battles. He's he's big, right? He's out two. So if he was your plan B to Trevor Ariza, now what? What do you do there? So that is where the turn to DeAndre Jordan, Dwight Howard come into play, right? Now, I suspect. Again, not speaking as somebody that has information, but just someone who pays attention to the team very closely. I suspect that DJ was plan B and not plan C, but the point remains is that I think that we came in to this season with a a plan that injuries kind of derailed. And when things don't go wrong, or when things don't go right, D, for people, what do they default to? They default to what they know, to what they're comfortable with. So I totally get the argument of we're going to come into the season... DJ is going to play the Javel role. Like We'd love to start AD at the five, but we just don't have the guys to do it. So we're going to start DJ at that spot, get the guys acclimated to the defensive system that we want to run. I I disagree with a couple of components of that, but I think that that's kind of how we got there. Did you, do you see it similarly?
2: Yes. I think a key part in this too is that Frank Vogel sees Carmelo Anthony and Dwight Howard as backups. And I mm-hmm. think that, mm-hmm. that if yeah, you were putting yeah. the team together... He had an idea of who was going to start and who was going to be a backup. You already mentioned three of the guys who were going to start LeBron. A.D. and Trevor Ariza. Russell Westbrook's an obvious fourth guy. The fifth guy is almost irrelevant to me. It could have been Malik Monk. It could have been Wayne Ellington. It could have been Taylor and Horton Tucker. Any of those guys could have been a viable starting shooting guard. I think for you need to shoot a shooter. See,
1: I don't think it's sure, irrelevant. Sure, I think that fits but, by, but
2: I'm not yeah. talking. I'm not talking about how the lineup fits. I'm just talking about whoever the fifth guy is, is whoever the fifth guy is. Whoever okay, is not gotcha, the fifth gotcha. guy, those guys are coming off. That's not part of the argument that you're making. Yes. The fun part is, is that all of those guys were hurt to start the season. So none of them were available and neither was Kendrick Nunn. Right. And so every single guy who you would have slotted into shooting guard, in theory, was injured. All of them, as well as the guy who you purported was going to start at power forward or small forward next to LeBron James. So it's not just like, oh, well, let's start DeAndre Jordan because that's my plan B. Well, didn't didn't we plan on starting Bayes though at the two? The earlier reports were like, oh, well, it could be um Wayne Ellington. But okay, let's say it's Bayes. Bayes did start. Bayes' lineup dating stinks, and he hasn't played since the first month of the season. But but sure. Bays was one of those guys I think we were all all high on, and it turned out that he's not necessarily been as good a fit for the roster for whatever reason. Anyways, here they are though. They've got they're down to one wing, Ken Baysmore. They're down all their other wings, and the guy who they purported to be their starting other forward. And then you've got Dwight Howard and Carmelo Anthony, who Frank Vogel and I think correctly, viewed as his backup stretch forward and his backup center. And this is where coaching, I've seen a lot of different coaches coach for a bunch of different teams, including the Lakers. One of the things that I've always found interesting, but a through line through most coaches is, like, if I could Find a role for a guy. I really want to keep him in that role.
1: If if that's right. the role so that like I envision, off the bench, just yes, we want to find a title Dwight coming into the game at the twelve-minute mark of the second and fourth quarters. That's his spot. Of all of the things that are changing all around me, as Frank Vogel, I can write Dwight in in pen as in that position. If I can envision, if I
2: envision this being the answer to something, let's do that because that's. That's something that we can maintain, and the idea of even starting a lesser player in order to keep the player who you, mm-hmm. probably you mm-hmm. think is better in the role in which they you envision them performing for the entire season—that's something so many coaches do. It's why a lot of times, if the starter goes down, a lot of guys don't start their next, like their sixth man, the, their primary backup. They go to the third string guy. It, it, it happens so much, it's sort of crazy that this is the, but coaches do this all, all of the time. Mm-hmm. And, and so mm-hmm. this goes back to this idea of, of, all right, well, this is the hand that I've been dealt. How do I respond to it? And Vogel went in the direction that I didn't always agree with, but the options were so limited, I'm not exactly sure what the other viable solution was. Do you start Austin Reeves? Right? Like they got Avery Bradley and they started him almost immediately. And so I think that there are individual choices that we could um, debate with. You asked me earlier about why I thought the Lakers offense wasn't as good. It's because one of the things I was going to point back to you is that when you build a roster the way that the Lakers have and they prioritize a certain amount of skill sets that, that, that they have, a lot of times players of that archetype, they all have holes in similar places. Right and 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 so, Taylon Horton Tucker is a rim seeking wing. LeBron James is a wing seeking wing slash big. Anthony Davis is a rim seeking big. Russell Westbrook is a rim seeking guard. They all have the same weakness, or defenses all treat them the same. They are not shooters. Now LeBron's been, mm-hmm. I think, an effective shooter, yeah, but that, that's what I was trying to
3: get at, Darius, with the offense. It's like, well, yeah, the, the the way you play this team, you know, pretty simple. And so, a part of me feels like. The when you talked about the dials being
2: turned in a certain direction, I could even argue the same for Kendrick Nunn. He's not a shooter shooter. And the shooter shooters that they signed are vet minimum guys. Right. And so Wayne Ellington was their shooter shooter. He hasn't played to that level yet. Malik Monk is a good shooter, but he's not like Ray Allen out there or Clay Thompson and sorry to keep bringing up some of the best shooters in the world, right? I could name a guy like JJ Reddick or Kyle Korver. These are guys who are at a lesser level, but are all in terms of their superstar status in the league, but the quality in which they present as a shooter matters. And sometimes I feel like one of the reasons why the Lakers aren't as good on offense isn't just the injuries. It's the lack of balance within some of the lineups that they play and how that creates a certain amount of decision making for the defense that allows them to align defenses in in a certain way that then put you down an even more specific path about, well, the way that we beat this is by doing this. And the other team has coaches, too. And so they know that if you've got one or two counters to this idea of, well, we're only going to do, do this. A lot of possessions are going to end with you taking a jump shot. And when jump shooting, isn't your strength, you're not going to
1: be as good at that. So yes, when you have, this has been really my entire argument before any of the results came in was that when you have like, I feel like in a, in a lot of respects, we haven't gotten over our off season When talking about this team, just so that we could talk about this team. Like, this is what we have. And that when you have LeBron James, Russell Westbrook, and Anthony Davis on all three of those guys, I would rather have all three of them taking a jump shot where they don't break down my defense and just take a standstill jumper where we just pack in the paint. I would rather have all three of them doing that than driving to the basket and wreaking havoc. And so, what that does, we talked so much early in the season that the defensive decisions that you force after that, what you do after that with those other two spots are extremely important. We talk about our offense being 24th in offensive rating overall. We also have a look that is far and away the number one offense in the NBA. And it speaks to the importance of the personnel that we play. I really think that this season, that there has to be a a lot of care to the details of who plays together. How does there might be five players on the court, but like you were saying, D, if even a guy like Kendrick Nunn is somebody I'd rather have take a jump shot than go to the basket or where he's like a 70% finisher around the rim and he's got all of this. So the how do all five of these guys fit together offensively? The reason that the team's twenty fourth in offense is we played a lot of lineups that are kind of um, that are really in service of the defense and in service of being able to play bigger. All right, this is an ab- abrupt ending to the show. I'm sorry for that. This uh, there's a lot of context apparently on Vogel uh, to give. I suspect that we will be having a continuation of this conversation to really get into the meat and potatoes of. How this has impacted Vogel and the Lakers. We'll be back tomorrow to cover the game against the Pacers here on the Laker Film Room Podcast.
2: The has got it in low to McHale. McHale wants to turn his double team. Just pass out of front, broken up by Worthy. Tip to Magic. Worthy dies on his belly. Magic scores. There's Magic, got it. Magic fires. It's the Lakers win the game. The Lakers win the game. Three seconds left. That next will the winner. It. It's on the
0: There's the move, two, score. Missing. is it. it. uh, unbelievable, unbelievable. It's, it's over, shot popping out of five, Bryant, yes, yeah. and that was a little tough to Albert Gentry,
3: that insult to injury Kobe, I mean what a shot, I mean you can't defend that, are you kidding me, 2.1 seconds remaining, Denver a foul to give, Jokic,